Now we come to chapter 4, and actually what we have here in these first two verses, at least, a continuation of this warning. And then we are going to see in the last part of the chapter, in fact, the entire chapter, including this warning, the subject is Christ is superior to Joshua. Now, you see, Moses led them out of Egypt, but he couldn't lead them in. And Joshua led them into the land, but we're going to find out he couldn't give them rest at all because many of them never found rest. They never really laid hold of their possessions in the land. And the world of flesh and the devil robbed many of them of the blessing God had for them. Uh, you and I live in a mean, wicked world, friends. And this world's not the friend of grace. It's not the friend of the believer. But many of us haven't discovered that yet. Now, will you notice verse 1? Let us therefore fear. Now, we've come to the first let us. He constantly, the writer here, we believe it is Paul, it's typical of him, constantly urges believers to go on with the Lord, constantly challenging them. And we now come to the first, I think, of the let us. There's a whole lot of let us in Hebrews, but it's not a salad epistle as I think you've already discovered, this is real meat and potatoes. This is a good porterhouse steak, by the way. Let us, but you have a salad to go along with it. Let us therefore fear. Now, here is something. There are always some folk that, you know, find fault even with the Word of God, and they say, now look, this sounds to me like a contradiction, because he says, let us therefore fear. And yet, we're told in Scripture that we've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, Paul said in Romans 8, 15. And in 2 Timothy 1, 7, he said to a young preacher, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Well, I have a message that I've preached on when it's not wrong to fear. And I hope that you are afraid of a rattlesnake I'm just deathly afraid of a rattlesnake. I tell you, if I see him coming down the road, I don't just drive on the right side. I give him the whole road. It's his. There are certain things that you and I do well to fear. Let us therefore fear. And there are many things. I wish there was more concern today among believers about the ignorance of the Word of God. I had a man who was on my church board, and he was on about every other board in town because he had money. And if you've got plenty of money, the Christians will manage to get you on the board, friends, and you'll find yourself bored many times, I can assure you that. And so actually boasted of the fact of how many boards he was on. And then one day he boasted to me how ignorant he was of the Word of God. Uh, what should he have done? Let us therefore fear. He should have, with great concern, fear in his eyes, should have said to me, Oh, my ignorance of the Word of God, I'm afraid of it. And yet there are very few believers that are afraid of that. Let us therefore fear. This is a good fear. I have been trying to tell my little grandson, I tell him, you let 
that light alone. It's hot. Don't touch that. And I tell him when we're on the sidewalk taking a walk, I tell him, don't go out in the street. Now, I want him to be afraid to go out in the street because that's a good fear. And after all, doesn't the Word of God say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It's the kind of fear you have, the very beginning of knowledge. Now, the fear that he's talking about here is for a purpose. He makes it very clear. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, he's going to talk a great deal about rest in this chapter here. The fact of the matter is, rest occurs eight times in this particular chapter here. Now, the rest is going to be compared not only to Canaan, but to the Sabbath day, creation rest. And we're going to see that when we get to it. In fact, there are several different kinds of rest that are mentioned here. Now he's talking about that Canaan rest. He's saying to believers, be afraid because you don't want to miss it. And how many are missing it today? Have you entered into rest? Do you know, Christian friend, what it is really to trust Christ and rest in him? Now, verse 2, "...for unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it." Now, there is the rest of salvation. That rest is the rest of trusting Christ as Savior. "...for we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, he's discussing here, I believe, salvation rest, the rest of trusting Christ. Now, let me ask you a question today. If there was a man that you knew, and he was a professing Christian, you felt like he was a real born-again Christian, but all of a sudden, that man would stop living the Christian life, begin to act like the world. He would no longer go to church. He no longer gave anything to the Lord's work, and he lost out in all Christian activity. Would you think that he lost his salvation? Now, suppose you were the person. Would you feel like you had lost your salvation? If you feel like that would cause you to lose your salvation. May I say to you, way back in your mind, way back there, in the deep recesses of your heart, you really are not trusting Christ, are you? You think those things do add to salvation. Now, they don't. Are you completely trusting Christ? Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe if you're trusting Christ, you're going to be doing these things. But the doing of these things haven't anything in the world to do with your salvation. Have you really entered into rest? Now, will you notice verse 4? For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. Now, this is Sabbath. This is the Sabbath. God rested. 
That was the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath today is not a day you keep. Have you entered into the real Sabbath today? Do you know what it is to trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation so you don't trust anything else? He's it. Or as I heard Dr. Chaffer say so many times, I want to so trust Christ that if I came into his presence, he'd say to me, on what basis have you come for salvation? And I'd say, I trusted you as my Savior. And he'd say, well, that was very fine of you to do that, but don't you have something else to offer? And I'd say, no, I didn't trust any of those things. Well, he'd say, well, you did do this and you did do the other thing. You were president of a seminary. Don't you want to mention that? And I'd say, no, I never trusted those. And then he'd say, I cannot accept you there. And Dr. Schaeffer used to say, I want to so trust Christ that I'd turn and walk away and say, I only trusted you for my salvation. Are you really trusting Christ today? Have you entered into rest? Now, I had a friend. I won't mention the group that he's with. I'm sure you'll distinguish the group right immediately. He kept Saturday, and he was a good friend of mine. He was a doctor. He and I played tennis together. And when you play tennis with a man, you get acquainted with him, and he and I became very friendly. One day after we'd played three sets of tennis, why, we sat down on the bench, and we began what you'd call a religious argument, because we generally ended up always in that. And he looked at me that day, and he said to me, he says, McGee, do you keep the Sabbath day? And he had that look in his eye, you know. And I got a look in my eye, and I looked at him. I said, yes, I keep the Sabbath. He looked at me, what day? And so I got a real look in my eye then. I said to him, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I start all over again on Saturday. He says, what in the world do you mean? I said, well, the way I understand the epistle to the Hebrews, that the Sabbath day now is this day of grace in which I live, and that Christ, when he died on the cross, he went back to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down, and he sat down not because he's tired, but because he'd finished my redemption and your redemption. And so he tells me, you rest in me. And so I just have a Sabbath day every day. I rest in Christ. And that man looked at me in amazement. Well, he says, that's better than having one day, isn't it? And I said, it sure is. I said, seven days a week is a Sabbath of resting in Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here, verse 5, And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached, entered not in because of unbelief. It's unbelief that robs you of the rest of salvation and the rest of the satisfaction and the blessing that God can give to us. Oh, the wonderful rest that he wants to give us. Therefore, he says, seeing therefore it remaineth, and therefore there's a rest for you. Verse 7, again he limiteth, 
a certain day, saying, And David, today, after so long a time, as is said, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, he's saying, not tomorrow, but today. And today is today for you and me. Back yonder, it was another day for these folks that the writer here is addressing. But, my friend, today, right now, wherever you are, look at your watch, your clock. What time is it? Well, this is the time of salvation. This is now, now, right now, you can trust Christ as your Savior. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. What a wonderful thing. For if Jesus, and here it's Joshua, because Joshua is the Old Testament word, means Savior. Jesus means Savior in Greek. It's the Greek form. For if Jesus or Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? You remember that even it says Joshua was old and stricken in years, and yet there was very much land conquer. You see, they hadn't entered into all the blessing God had for them. Joshua wasn't able to do it. But my friend, if you trust Christ, Christ can let you enter in to the Canaan of the present day, the blessing of the present day, when there will be fruit in your life, blessing in your life, and joy in your life. Oh, how believers need this today. And What robs us of it? Unbelief. Unbelief. Oh, trust him today. Now will you notice verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now I think he's projecting into the future that all of the people of God are going to find a heavenly rest. Heaven will be a place of deep satisfaction, real joy, and a place of real blessing, and that is the rest. None will make anyone afraid there. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now, in verse 10, "...for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his." Now, when God rested on the seventh day, we've said this before, Actually, we shouldn't get the impression that what he did was to sit down and say, My, I'm tired. Been working six days, eight hours a day, or from sunup to sundown, and I'm weary. And pull up the rocking chair. I want to rest. It's not that thought at all. The thought there is the rest of completeness. Creation is finished. God hasn't been in the business of creating since then. There were just so many atoms of hydrogen that he needed for his universe, and he just made them all at once. And he hasn't been making them since then. Now, there's been quite a change that's been taking place in the universe, but it's just these little old atoms rearranging themselves. And sometimes even the little atom gets torn apart, and that causes quite a commotion. And you and I are living in a universe where the creation is over with, except in the new creation. And that new creation began yonder at Calvary, 
and at the day of Pentecost. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And that's the only thing God's creating today are sons of his, those that will trust him. And there is a rest, therefore, that he's promised to them. They'll get that rest. But friends, he wants you to enjoy it. In other words, as someone has said, all the way to heaven is heaven. We ought to enjoy it. And that's what he's talking about here. God rested. He ceased from his labor. He's finished. Now, you don't have to lift your little finger to do something for your salvation. I wonder, really, when you begin to think this through, isn't it a matter of conceit on our part to think that you and I as sinners could do something that would cause God to say, Oh, my, what a nice little fellow you are. And I'm so happy to have you in heaven because you are sure going to add a great deal to it. Well, my friends, that's not the picture at all. He did it all for us, you see, because even our righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. He can't accept our righteousness because we don't have any. There are none righteous, no, not one. And therefore, he offers a finished salvation to you. And when you trust Christ, you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, will you notice here, he is saying something now that's tremendous, and it's another lettuce salad, by the way. Lettuce. This chapter open with lettuce. Now again, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And I think that this is the supreme satisfaction that comes to a child of God, that he's in the will of God, that he's doing the work of God, and that he can trust God, that he can just rest in him. Oh, that glorious place that God wants you and me to come to. That place that Mary came to, she sat at Jesus' feet. And Martha's back yonder in the kitchen with those pots and pans. She wanted to serve Christ, but she just didn't know what real rest was. And so here's poor Martha. She thinks, well, I'll bake this. And she reaches for a pan and she decides it's not big enough. And then she starts to put it up and it falls on the floor and she gets a bigger pan. And oh my, time Martha got through with those pots and pans. She was really worn to a frazzle, and she came out, and she lost her temper, you know. My, look at Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, doing nothing. But Mary had already done her work. And if we just learn to sit at Jesus' feet, that satisfaction, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And friends, the only thing in the world that can rob you of that rest is unbelief. My prayer has been since I've retired, Oh, God, help me to trust you. Help me to trust you. Well, I was a pastor for 40 years. And you know, very frankly, I just have to look back and say, I wish I had trusted him more. Oh, how many times I was so fearful and so unbelieving. And if I just only believed him, only trusted him. So I'd like today just to rest back and trust him. How wonderful, how wonderful he is. And we can trust him. 
and let us labor. Now, somebody says, labor to enter into rest? You bet, my friend. You bet. I want to say to you, and by the way, a man wrote me the other day, they find fault with me for some of the most, they said, you say, you bet, and you know it's wrong to gamble. You want to know something? That's just an expression. I have enough scotch blood in me that I wouldn't bet on anything if it meant putting up money. And to me, it's foolish for anybody to go to Las Vegas and sit down at a table and throw away a fortune. I can understand people that would do that sort of thing, but there are apparently a lot of people like it. So when I say you bet, that's just an expression. I hope you won't write me a letter on that unless you put something in it for radio. Now, if you want to do that, that would be wonderful. But friends, may I say to you, this is sort of like the Irishman that said that he intended to have peace in his home even if he had to fight for it. And the Irish have been pretty good at fighting for it too, by the way. Fighting for peace? Yes. I wish we had learned that lesson. May I say to you, you have to win a war before you can have peace. You have to have a victory before you can have peace. So he says now, here, let us labor in order to rest. And then after all, when you've worked at something and you come to the end of the day and you sit down, isn't there a satisfaction in that, that you have done that? Oh, today to lay hold of God, to lay hold of God in prayer and in faith and to be used of him today. Oh, my Christian friend, I say to you, let us, let us, whole lot of let us, let us labor. Now, will you notice, we come to a great verse of Scripture. It says, for, and now we've come to another one of these little words that back in Romans we call it cement. Paul uses the word wherefore, therefore, and for as cement to hold together his arguments because Paul was a marvelous logician. He's logical. As someone has said, regardless of what you want to say about Paul, there's one thing you have to say, Paul is logical. And I think he wrote this, and here's the little word for. Small little word, but it's a big word. As someone has said, God swings big doors on little hinges. Here's one of those little hinges, but it's a big door on it. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I want us to look at that verse, if you don't mind. I want us to take a good long look at it. Now, there are some expositors that consider the Word here actually not to be the written Word, but to be the living Word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But after all, the written words call the living Word too. And here, I think primarily, it's the written Word. And as the written Word reveals Christ, it's a frame that reveals the living Christ. I think that it could refer to both. But I think primarily it refers here to the written Word. Now, let's see what he says here. The Word of God 
We're to believe the Word of God. For the Word of God is quick. Now, the word quick, it's living. The Word of God is living. And it is powerful. And the word powerful here means it energizes. That's actually the Greek word. It energizes. The Word of God, it's living. And it energizes. Now, he not only says that, but notice this. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I had a professor in seminary that said to a group of us young preachers, he said, remember, when you preach the Word of God, it is sharp, quick, but it's a two-edged sword. It will cut toward the congregation, but the other side is going to cut toward you. And therefore, don't preach anything that you're not preaching to yourself. And very candidly, I have found in my ministry that I've preached to myself many times, that the sermon might not have been for anybody else, but it was for me. A very good friend of mine, he kids me about making these tapes. He asked me the first time, he said, do you have an audience before you when you make those tapes? And I said, yes. He said, who are they? And I said, the radio audience. Oh, he says, I mean a live audience. You have a live audience. No, I said, I sit by myself in my study and I make the tapes. But I'm talking to you all the time. And he likes to kid me about it. He says, there you are, sitting in there talking to yourself. Well, candidly, that's the way it works out. Many times I'm speaking to myself. And it may not apply to you, but it applies to me. And this right here certainly does. It's two-edged. It cuts both ways. Inward and outward, it will cut toward the other fellow, but it also will cut toward us today. It's a two-edged sword, and that is what the Word of God is to do. It'll penetrate. And Paul, you remember, said the Thessalonians, they hadn't received it, you know, as just ordinary word, but they received it as it was indeed the very Word of God. And Paul said, Therefore, when he gave it out, he wanted to give it, not just in word only, but in demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the reasons, friends, that we share letters. We read one of what the Word of God, here the Through the Bible program, is doing in the heart of this individual, broader to a saving knowledge of Christ and broader to the place today where she can enjoy her Christian faith and rejoice in Christ. That's a purpose of the Word of God. And if it doesn't do that, then you've been reading the wrong thing because the Word of God, friends, has an effect upon you and will have an effect upon you. And as someone has said, the Word of God will keep you from sin. Our sin will keep you from the Word of God. Great many believers today do not spend enough time in the Word of God. A great many preachers do not spend enough time in the Word of God. The greatest discipline relative to young preachers, one of the things that I would like to say to young preachers is the greatest discipline that you can have is to go through the Bible with your congregation. That's a discipline. It may not help the congregation, but sure help you. And so every church I ever served, I always went through the Bible with them. Now, I didn't know whether it helped them or not, but it sure did help me. 
It was good for me. It's sharp. It's like a two-edged sword. Now, we're not through with this verse. Will you notice what he says? Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, I had a question some time ago asked me by a man to make a distinction between soul and spirit. And he had worked out some little ingenious psychological division of the two. And I talked with him about it. I said, you've worked out a cute little division. That sounds very nice. But did you know that only the Word of God can divide the soul and the spirit? You and I can't do it. When I begin to talk about the soulish part of man and then that God's given him the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden I find that I'm not making a distinction. Why? Because only the Word of God can make the distinction of soul and spirit, friends. And sometimes in the Word of God, they're synonymous. Soul and spirit, I'm confident many passages mean the same thing. Then the other passages where it's very definite, very clear that the soul and the spirit, they're not the same thing, that they are separate. Well, that's what we have here. Only the Word of God can divide soul and spirit. And also it can divide joints and marrow. It can get right down into this, even this flesh of ours, and make a distinction. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I rather like this here. The word for discerner here, actually, the Greek word is critic. It is krino. It is a critic. We have today a great many critics of the Word of God. You want to know something? The Word of God is the critic. It criticizes you, criticizes me. And I doubt, frankly, whether any man today is in a position to sit in judgment on the Word of God. And I'll tell you why. There are many reasons. One of the reasons is there's no book like it. It's written over a period of 1,500 years by about 45 different authors. Some of them never heard of the others, even those that followed along after those that preceded. They never even heard of them. And yet they all are in agreement and all present a great story, present a glorious salvation. Now, may I say to you, no man is in a position to sit in judgment on that. I listened to a very fine, brilliant scholar discuss Shakespeare. And after he finished, he was a very humble man. And a lot of scholars are not humble. This man was. He said, you know today I have attempted to give to you a critique of Shakespeare. But he said, I would like now to say to you that I am in no position to sit in judgment on Shakespeare. May I say to you, it took a normal man to say that. But there's no man that could sit in judgment on a book like the Bible, my friend. You don't know enough. You're not well enough acquainted with it to sit in judgment on this kind of a book. No man for that. But this book surely sits in judgment on us. And as we've said before, it's sin that keeps men from Christ today. It's never the head. It's always the heart. That's where the problem is. And it is a discerner. It's a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, the Bible does not deal with acts primarily. 
what the hand does is because the heart thought of it. The heart had the action of the hand in hand before the hand got a hold of it. Therefore, the Word of God goes down and deals with the heart. You remember the Lord Jesus said, Out of the heart proceed. And my, it's a filthy list there. But that's what's in your heart and my heart. The heart's desperate, the wicked, who can know it? No man can. God does. And the Word of God gets down and deals with the nitty-gritty. It gets down and meets us right where the rubber meets the road, friends. Right down where you and I live and move and have our being. Now, we're told here, "...neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do." You can't conceal anything from him. I labored under the delusion as a young Christian that I would not let God in on everything that was in my life or even my plans. I'd pray that he'd give me certain things and do certain things, but I'd never let him know the motive. I didn't need to let him know the motive to tell the truth, but I thought, you know, the prayer would sound better if I kept the motive out of it. But he knew it all the time. He is one that knows the thoughts of the heart. And everything is open to him today. My friend, your life is an open book to him. Somebody says, you think we ought to confess everything to him. Well, why don't you? <laughs> My friend, you already know. Just well tell him all about it. How wonderful, how wonderful this is. Now, as we come to this passage of Scripture in the fourth chapter beginning here with verse 14, we begin now our consideration of our great high priest in the next three verses. And we're going to see, beginning here with verse 14, chapter 4, down through the 28th verse of chapter 7, that Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood, and that the Lord Jesus is himself our great high priest. Now, that was important to see because Israel was accustomed to go through their high priest of the Levitical order and the priest that served in the tabernacle later in the temple, and it was through them that they made their commitment to God and brought their sacrifices. Now, we find in this passage that the Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest. In fact, the writer here, and we believe it was Paul, was so concerned and so enthusiastic about the priesthood of Christ that way back in chapter 3, at that time, you remember, he said, "...consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus." He wanted to get the folk that were reading the epistle immediately to consider our high priest. Now he's come to the subject, and this is going to be the subject, actually, I think, through the rest of the epistle. But there will be, of course, application of the great truth. Now he says in verse 14, and let me read, "...seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, 
the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, or better still, our confession. Now, Christ is our high priest. The pagan notion of priesthood, I think, colors our thinking in reference to a priest. A pagan priest actually barred the approach to God. The priest claimed some mystical powers that would be essential to bring an individual to God, and you'd have to go through this priest who had this particular ability. And, of course, that type of thing denies the finished work of Christ and the priesthood of all believers. That was one of the great truths that John Calvin emphasized, and that was the priesthood of all believers. All of us need a priest. We have a lack, and we need help, and all of us have hang-ups, and it's the answer to the heart cry of Job when he says, oh, that there was a daysman, mediator, priest, to stand between me and God, put his hand in the hand of God, and then put his hand in my hand and bring us together. Now, we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens. And let me say right at the very beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ was not a priest on earth. The only mention of him ever making any kind of a sacrifice, and he never needed to make a sacrifice for himself, of course, was the time that he told Simon Peter to go catch a fish and to take the gold piece out of his mouth that he might pay the tax. And he did that, I think, to make it very clear that he was not a priest here on earth, and that to be a priest, you had to come in the line of Aaron. You had to be in the tribe of Levi. And the Lord Jesus came in the tribe of Judah. And what was not in the priestly line, he was in the kingly line. But when he was here on earth, he came to this earth as a prophet. He came here to speak for God. He went back to heaven, a priest, to represent us. He became a priest when he ascended to heaven. He died down here to save us, and he lives up yonder to keep us saved. Now, let's look at this again. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, we have a great high priest. He's passed into the heavens. Now, the Lord Jesus today that's one of his offices. He is a priest. Now, it's true that when he was here, that he offered himself upon the cross. And that is the function of a priest. But as a priest to represent you and me, well, it means that he had to wait till he got back to heaven to do that. I like to put it like this. Christ occupies a threefold office. He was a prophet when he came here 1,900 years ago. That's the past. He is a priest today. That's for the present. He's coming someday as the king. That's the future. But he occupies all three offices. And this is the threefold office of Christ. 
And this actually is the great subject of the epistle to the Hebrews here. He says, let us hold fast, not our profession, but our confession. And here we have some more lettuce. This is a regular salad bowl here, because we'll have it again in verse 16. Lettuce. It's a challenge to us, you see, a call to us, and I think actually a command to us. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, if you'll notice, he didn't say, let us hold fast our salvation. He's not talking about our salvation He's talking about our testimony down here, about our witness, about our living for him. He died down here to save us. He lives up yonder to keep us saved and enable us down here to witness a good witness. And that is something that's important. Some people say, well, I can't live the Christian life. Well, I have news for you. You can't live the Christian life. And God never asked you to live the Christian life. And i am sure been thankful for that because I tried it. It didn't work. You can't do it in your own strength. He never asked that. He asked that he might live it through us. He lives up yonder, friends, in order that you and I might hold fast to our confession, our testimony down here. Now, he is going to give a regular roll call of the heroes of faith, we call them. Actually, it shows what faith did in the lives of men and women in all ages when he gets to the 11th chapter. And when he gets over there to the 11th chapter, he says that all of these, they had a good witness. They all had that. These all contained a good report. That is, a good witness through faith. They witnessed a good witness. And you can take any of them that You have there Abraham. He witnessed a good witness. These men live by faith. Now, as they live by faith, we today have a great high priest who is there to help us live for God today. Now, let me go to verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tested like as we are, yet without sin. And if you'll notice that word, yet, is in italics. Tempted without sin. He was tested without sin. And I'm not going into this again because I've already dealt with it, but in the temptation, as we call it, the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, he could not have fallen because he's the God-man. But the pressure of testing was actually greater on him than it would be on us. He could say, the prince of this world cometh, he finds nothing in me. Well, he'd find something in me, and I'm sure in you. The illustration would be, here is a boat in the water, and that boat can only stand so much pressure. When too much pressure is put on, why, there will be a rip in the hull of the boat, the ship, and water will come in. Then the pressure's removed. And that's the way most of us are. We give in. And the minute you give in, the pressure's gone, you see, because you've yielded. He never did yield. And that was the constant building up of a pressure that actually you and I know nothing about at all 
Or let me use another illustration for landlubbers. Let's look at the train. There it goes by a freight train. Have you ever watched it? It says the weight that you can put on each one of those cars. And every now and then you see a swayback car, like an old swayback horse, bowed down in the middle. What happened? They put too much weight on it. It gave in. It could only carry so much load. And that's true of all of us. We can just carry so much, and we can't carry any more. Well, may I say to you, the weight that he could carry was infinite. And he was tested, therefore. And as we have already dealt with that, we're not going into that again. But he was tested. And for that reason, he knows how we feel. We have a high priest that understands us. I've always felt that in the nation Israel, that the death of Aaron, in one sense, was greater than the death of Moses. The reason for that is that Aaron was their great high priest. And I'm of the opinion that there were Israelites that had been brought up with Aaron, played with him as a boy as they went through the wilderness, and also were well acquainted with him as he grew to young manhood. And they could go to him and they'd say, Look, Aaron, I did this, and I should not have done it. I brought my sacrifice. And Aaron could sympathize. Aaron says, I know exactly how you feel. And when Aaron died, they wondered whether that new priest, the son of Aaron, does he understand me? Will he be able to sympathize with me? Will he be able to help me? Well, we have a great high priest. And he's always available, he's always there, and he understands us. He understands us, not academically, but he is in the flesh. And down here, he was tested. He was touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to be touched with sorrow. Jesus wept. He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but without sin, sin apart. Now we come to verse 16. Let us, here's some more let us, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the thing that interests me in this verse here, and I must confess I never liked our translation, and I wouldn't know, actually, how to change it at all. It says here that we're to come boldly to his throne of grace. We're to come boldly to the throne of grace. Well, I have a feeling that in that word boldly, it has the thought of being brazen, and that there is a sort of flippancy about it. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Be cocksure. And that really is not the word. But I do not know what other word that we could put here. It's a very interesting word, metaparesios. And actually, it denoted the freedom of speech that the Athenians prized so highly. Because... Actually, they were probably one of the first that the average citizen should have freedom to speak and freedom to say. 
what it is. Now, that is rather the word here. Let us therefore come with great freedom, that is, to the throne of grace. We can speak freely to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I can tell him things I can't tell you. And he understands me. He knows my weakness, and I just well tell him. And I've learned to be very frank with him, not attempt to become buddy-buddy. I despise that approach today. We don't come that way to him. He is God, and I come in worship and reverence to him. But I'm free to speak because he's also a man. He's God, but he's man. And I come to him, and I can come boldly, if you understand by that. I can come with great freedom. I can tell him what's on my heart. I can open my heart to him. And I'm not sure, therefore, that all these very pious and flowery prayers are impressive to him, especially when they're covering up a great deal that's in our hearts and in our lives. I know a certain preacher when I was a student in college, my roommate said to him, he says, when that man prays, I always feel like God starts listening and says, I wonder what he's going to say now, because he really soared to the heights with flowery speech. And I've since come to the conclusion that the Lord tuned him out, because he didn't come boldly, he didn't come with freedom, he didn't open up his heart to God. We can do that. And that's one of the reasons that our prayer meetings are not very effective today, because we come to the prayer meeting and we come rather restrained. We don't open our hearts to God. Let us come with freedom to the throne of grace. Now, God's throne is a throne of grace today. It's a judgment throne, actually, but it is today a throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, and we need a lot of mercy. Mercy is something that, in one sense, is negative. It speaks of the past, the mercy of God. We're redeemed today, and it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. He's been merciful to me, and I'm sure he has to you, And then help is a very positive thing that I think speaks of the future. We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord is my shepherd, not I have not wanted. And I notice one of the new translations of all the ridiculous things says, I have not wanted. Well, the beauty of it is that David could say, I shall not want. Sure, he hadn't in the past, and he hadn't in the present, but that's not what he's saying. I shall not want. Why? Because the Lord's my shepherd. I've got a high priest up yonder. I can go to him. And by the way, have you been to him yet today? What would you tell him? Did you tell him that you loved him? Did you tell him what a miserable creature that you are? Why don't you tell him that? He already knows it, but tell him that. Don't put up a front to him. And don't give this pious approach that we come to you in the merit of Christ. He already knows that. You wouldn't even get there if it wasn't for his merit. You come with freedom and talk to him, because the only way you're going to get there is through him, my friend. Oh, don't be pious with him. I don't think he likes it. Now we come to chapter 5. 
And as we come to chapter 5, here in the first 10 verses, we have the definition of a priest. Christ, as we've already said, has the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, he spoke here 1,900 years ago. We've already seen he's God's final word to man. God has said all he intends to say in Christ. Now, he's the word of God, too. And then he's today our priest. And that's for right now, for today. He's the priest for the now generation. And he's going to come someday as a king. But right now, he's our great high priest. Now, friends, if you found your place, we're going to see the definition of a priest because we're told that Christ is our great high priest. And that's something very important for us to see, that he is our great high priest. We have access to him. Every believer is a priest. You can come just as Aaron was the great high priest. All the tribe of Levi were priests. We have a great high priest, and we are priests. We have access to God. We can offer a sacrifice to God. Praise is one. Have you praised him today? And then we can offer our substance to him, the fruit of our hands, or the fruit of our mind, or our time. We can make all of these an offering to him, and we do that as a priest, by the way. And prayer is the work of a priest. And this eliminates all of the mechanics that we have today and all of the methods that we have We have, I think, two extreme approaches to God through worship, and one is a very emotional approach, and then the other is a very ritualistic approach. And both of them actually are very soulish. It's not spiritual worship at all. We need to come just simply to him and get rid of all the mechanics and the methods. I think of the little story that somebody sent to me about the astronaut. He was in his capsule, just ready to close the door in preparation for the launching, and the reporter asked him a question. And reporters, I've observed, can ask some rather asinine questions. He says, how do you feel? Well, how do you feel when you're an astronaut ready to take off? And this was his answer. How would you feel? if you were sitting on top of 50,000 parts, each supplied by the lowest bidder. (laughs) May I say to you, that's the worship of a great many people today. Ritualistic, are emotional, and both of them are very soulish. Oh, notice what he says. Let us come in freedom today to the throne of grace. And we need mercy We need help. We're needy people. And he is in a position to supply because he's our great high priest. But who is a great high priest? Chapter 5 now is going to answer that for us. Let me read this first verse. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for man in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. 
Now, we have in this verse actually the definition of a priest. And there are here, I believe, three requirements. Number one is he must be taken from among men. That means that he must be a man. He must be a representative, you see. And he represents man, but he represents man to God. And we're told here he's ordained for man in things to God, you see. He goes to God. Now, he must therefore be acceptable to God. And you'll notice that is the suggestion here for man in things to God. And when you get down to verse 4, we're told specifically, "...and no man taketh this honor unto himself." by he that is called of God, as was Aaron. In other words, he must be God-ordained. So that we have here, he must be a man, and he must go to God, and he must be acceptable to God. And in other words, he must be ordained of God. And then, notice back in verse 1, he is ordained for man. He goes from man to represent them, and from among men, he must be one of them, and he represents them. That is, he represents them to God. Now, we can now draw a distinction, I think, between a priest and a prophet. What is a priest and what is a prophet? Well, a priest goes from man to God to represent man before God. But a prophet comes from God to man with a message from God. Now, that's the difference. And very candidly, it's a very important difference that we need to recognize here, that the priest, he is on the way from man going up to God, and the prophet is coming down on the other side of the freeway, and he's coming from God to man, a prophet, someone who speaks for God. And therefore... I'm not really concerned in hearing a priest telling me what God has to say. His business is to represent us before God. Now, the only one who can represent us, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the priesthood actually is not for lost sinners, but for saved sinners. Do you remember John says, little children, my little born ones? These things write unto you that you sin not. Well, I'm sorry, John, you're talking to a boy that sinned. Even as a child of God, I've sinned. Now, he took care of me there, for he says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. He represents me up there, and I have an accuser up there, accuses me. And he's my enemy. He's Satan. And the Lord Jesus represents me up there. He's my high priest. He is the one who represents me before God. That's one reason that I never would be satisfied to have just a priest down here. And I want to make this very clear and be very candid and honest about it and not attempt to be critical. But my problem would always be this. You are going to represent me before God. 
Well, are you sure that you're acceptable to God? Are you one that has accreditation? Have you passed your bar examination so that up there you can represent me? Now, we can pray one for another, but we can't represent one another before God, you see. I need somebody to represent me. And I'm very happy that I have someone that represents me before God. Now, that's what we're talking about, the great high priest. Now, will you notice that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices, and our Lord has offered himself, as the writer here is going to make it abundantly clear, that he had something to offer, and he offered himself. And when he offered himself, silver and gold would absolutely turn to lead, and it turned to dirt compared to the precious blood of Christ that has redeemed us. Now, will you notice here something else? He offers sacrifices for sins, not sin. It's plural, not singular. In other words, it speaks of the life of the believer here, of sin. When you lost your temper, that's sin. Did you go to God and confess that? Well, you have a representative up there that is there to make intercession for you, and he represented you before God. We need today one like that. Then we're told something else in verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? And we have a great high priest. He could say when he came to the end of his ministry, which are you convinced me of sin? Those men had been with him three years. And if there'd been anything wrong, why, they would have known it. He was impeccable. He didn't commit any sin. But the important thing is he can have compassion on the ignorant. Now, what does it mean on the ignorant? Well, that refers to sin of ignorance. Many of you were with us. That's been now several years ago, back in the book of Leviticus, back there in Leviticus 4.2. And that refers to sins of ignorance. I have some more news for you today. And that is, you don't think that you committed a sin in the past few days. You feel like that you've been living really up on the high. I've got news for you. You commit sins of ignorance that you don't even know about. And he takes care of that. He can have compassion on the ignorant. You see, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And all we like sheep. Sheep go astray, not goats. Goats seem to be smarter than sheep. Sheep go astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. And... Aaron was compassed with infirmity, but Christ was touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He knows how we feel about these things. He knows our weakness. He's a perfect mediator, you see. I've always felt that that passage over in the book of Isaiah, when Israel went through the wilderness and they failed, that somehow or another... When they fell, he fell with them. But very candidly, that's not what he did. The fact of the matter is that when they fell, why, he didn't fail. He was able there all the time. 
to be a representative. He was able to lift them up and keep them from failure. That, I think, is the important thing. And I recognize that that passage of Scripture, there have been two or three different ways of reading it. But my feeling has always been that it was not possible for him to fall at all. He was there when they stumbled and fell. He didn't get down in the dirt with them. He was there to lift them out of the dirt. Now, that's the glorious, wonderful thing that we have here before us. He had compassion on the ignorant. He's a perfect mediator. Now, the trouble with Aaron was that Aaron might condone those who had committed the sins that he also had committed. That would always be a danger. He might condemn those who committed sins that he himself did not commit. Christ is able to show mercy, and he neither condones nor condemns. He can extend mercy. When we come to him to make confession of our sin, he doesn't give us a little lecture about doing better next time. He doesn't say, oh, shame on you. You shouldn't have done that. He doesn't do that at all. He just extends mercy to us, friends. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, a high priest, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's wonderful to have a high priest like that. Now, in verse 3, you find here a contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, because there's no counterpart of this of Aaron's priesthood in Christ. Verse 3, "...and by reason thereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins." Now, you'll recall on the great day of atonement that Aaron first brought a sacrifice and took the blood in for his sins. The sin question settled. But there is no antitype in Christ. Christ didn't have to make an offering for himself. He made his offering for you and for me. And we've already looked at verse 4, but let me read it again. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So that we have here the fact that he is the priest because he is acceptable to God. Now, verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And now here is another verse that makes it abundantly clear that the begetting here hasn't anything to do with Bethlehem, has everything to do with the garden there near Calvary, where he was buried. That's his resurrection that he was begotten from the dead. Because, you see, his priesthood began when he went back to heaven. And that speaks of his resurrection. Now, verse 6, "...as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Now, the order of Aaron is not adequate to set before us the priesthood of Christ. So our Lord is not a high priest in the order of Aaron although Aaron is the type and Christ the antitype. But Christ is a son, again, and Aaron is just a servant. But what about this man Melchizedek? I want to spend just a moment looking at Melchizedek. Who is he? Well, 
he's mentioned back in the book of Genesis, and the only historical record that we have of him is in the 14th chapter of Genesis, and it was when Abraham was returning from that war in which he recovered all of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot, and he also brought back all the booty, and the king of Sodom met him and made him quite an offer that he could have all the booty. And this man Abraham was under some temptation, I'm sure, at that time. He turned it all down. But why? Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hands. And he gave him tithes of all. And Abraham gave a tenth to the king of Salem here. And as king of Salem, he's king of peace, and he is also king of righteousness. And he walks out on the page of Scripture out of nowhere. I don't know where he came from. And he walks off the same way, and I don't know where he went to, and there's no other mention of him. That is, historically. Now, over in Psalm 110, we have the prophecy of Melchizedek. There's coming one that's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, Hebrews now gives us the explanation. It gives us the interpretation of Melchizedek. Now, there's some very wonderful expositors that think that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ that met him. Well, I can't accept that. And I'll tell you why. Because the Lord Jesus is a type of Melchizedek. And my feeling is that the antitype could not be the type or you wouldn't have a type. Therefore, Melchizedek, I interpret him as being a human being. He was king of Salem, walks out on the page of Scripture and walks off. And there are those that think that he's the pre-incarnate Christ. Frankly, the two men that I have been, I suppose, blessed in my ministry as much as any other two would be Dr. G. Campbell Morgan and Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer. Both of them believed he was the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, you'd be in good company if you took that position. And if you follow me, you may not be in good company. But, of course, if you want to be right, well, you'd want to come along with me, I'm sure. Now, I just believe that he's given to us by Moses, and God guarded the type here. He just walks out of nowhere, and he walks into nowhere. He had no beginning or ending of days. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the beginning and the end. He's Alpha and Omega. He started it all and he ends it all. He's the Amen. He is the one who is the eternal, eternal God. So he has no beginning or ending, you see. And we have a priest like that. It's after Melchizedek. And we're going to get the interpretation here in this epistle of the Hebrews. I'm reading verse 7. Speaking now of the Lord Jesus, it says of him that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, speaking now of Christ, 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Now, we are told that the Lord Jesus wept on three occasions. Now, I'm of the opinion he wept on other occasions, but the record only gives us three occasions. One was at the grave of Lazarus. And at that time, although he knew what he was going to do, his heart went out in sympathy to the two sisters who were so deeply grieved. When I see him crying there, I know how he feels when you and I lose a loved one and stand at the graveside. And then he wept over Jerusalem. And if he wept over Jerusalem in that day, I'm of the opinion that he's wept over Los Angeles many times because it needs somebody to weep over it. And he has, I'm sure. And then the third is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, why did he weep there? I want to go over this again because I think it's very important to see. And unfortunately, it's been a cynic and an unbeliever that is saying something that some believers apparently do not firmly grasp. I do not mean this man understands this passage of Scripture, but he recognizes that he would love to have kept Jesus off the cross and killed him some other way. Now, that's exactly what the devil wanted to do, get rid of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Had he died in that garden, and I think that's what he meant when he said, let this cup pass. What was that cup? Well, it was death, and he did not want to die in the Garden of Gethsemane because I believe Satan attempted to slay him there, And we are told that he was heard in that he feared. Now, if he prayed in that garden to let the cup pass, and that meant he didn't want to die on the cross, then he wasn't heard because he did die on the cross. He was heard. He did not die in the garden of Gethsemane. You see, prophecy had made it abundantly clear that he was to die on a cross. The 22nd Psalm, Thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And you do not have a better picture of crucifixion than that. That cross was an altar on which the Son of God shed his blood, paying the penalty for your sin and my sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood, God says, but I've given it to make an atonement for your sin. In the Old Testament, The sacrifice just covered it up. Now, he shed his blood on the cross and altar. And he told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He did not want to die in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that, I think, is his prayer. Uh, Human prayers, he swept great drops of blood. Our Lord, he was near death as He approaches the cross, and that is the thing that he is praying to be delivered from. We are told that he was heard in that he feared. And again, as we've dealt with this before in this epistle, fear is not something that 
is always wrong. A great many people think if you're not brave under every circumstance, why, you are not really living the Christian life. It'd be abnormal if you did not fear. And I think we need a little bit more of it today, even in our churches when we meet. The fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom, we're told. And he feared. Now, that is the thing that I think we have here. Now, we have another question, though, to ask ourselves. We're told in verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, that is, complete, made full, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. You see, the only kind of salvation he offers is eternal. And if you can lose it tomorrow, then, my friend, it's not eternal. It's some other kind but sure not eternal. But he only offers eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. What is obedience? Well, they came to him and asked him the question, what is the work of God? He said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. You want to obey God? Then trust Christ. That is the thing that he's saying. But the thing that I don't understand here, and I'm very frank to confess it, I stand here in the presence of a mystery. Why did the Son of God need to learn obedience by suffering? And why did he need to be made perfect when he already was perfect? And I stand here in the presence of a mystery, and a mystery that I cannot fathom. And that is, God got something out of the death of Christ that has made heaven more wonderful and has added something to heaven where everything is perfection, and that the Son of God has learned something. Now, I know the answers that men give, but they don't satisfy me. I just recognize I'm standing in the presence of a great mystery, and he came down to this earth. He took upon himself our humanity, and in that humanity, he obeyed God. He said, I've come to do my Father's will. And he's made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death. Now, when I die, if the Lord tarry, I want to say this to you, that I won't do it obediently. I don't want to die. I think it's morbid today, and I think that folk are always wanting to die. My friend, I don't know about you, I want to live. I want to live down here just as long as I can. And at the time I had cancer, so many people wrote in, many of you wrote in and said, we're praying for you, the Lord will spare your life. And I thank you for it, because the Lord heard those prayers. But a dear lady right here in Southern California. And if I called her name, you'd know her, because she's the one that actually translated the Bible. And she's now gone to be with the Lord, and the Lord bless her, because she was a friend of mine, and she and I carried on, though, a running debate, as long as I was a pastor. Very friendly, of course. And she wrote and told me, she says, I'm not praying that the Lord will leave you here. I know that you're ready to go. 
And so I'm praying that he'll take you. And I wrote her back in a hurry. And I said, listen, you let the Lord alone in this matter. It's just between him and me. And I don't want you to tell the Lord when he wants to take me home because I want to stay. And I'll just appreciate you not praying that prayer anymore, at least changing it and telling him that you made a mistake, that he wants to stay. May I say to you how foolish that is to take that kind of a position. I want to stay down here as long as I can. And I recognize I'm in the presence of a mystery, and even my Lord learned something in this. And that's all I can say. I can't say any more relative to it. Now we're told here, verse 10, he's called of God an high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the word called here means saluted, and it refers back to Melchizedek. He's going to discuss this matter of the priesthood of Christ, the high priesthood of Christ, and that Melchizedek was given to us in the Old Testament, only two references back there to him, but they were given because they were to be a type of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've come into the presence of another red light. We have come here to the third danger signal that he puts up here. And this danger signal is like a red light. He's getting ready now to drive out on the highway again. And before he does, he says, we've got to look both ways. And this is very important. Here in the remainder of this chapter, there is the danger signal, the peril of being dull of hearing. And here is a passage of Scripture that we need to pay attention to because it's a very important passage of Scripture. Here from verse 11 on down through the remainder of this chapter, the peril of being dull of hearing. And then in chapter 6, he's going to mention another danger signal before he gets to this subject of Christ, our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the peril of departing. Now, we are coming, as many of you know, to that great chapter, the sixth chapter of Hebrews. And we want to finish this section so that next time I can give all my attention to this marvelous sixth chapter and we recognize the problem that is there, but we're going to deal with it. Now, will you notice here, he puts up the red light now, verse 11, of whom we have many things to say. Paul says, I've got a lot of things to say and hard to be uttered. Now, why is it hard to be uttered? The problem was seeing year dull of hearing. Paul could state it, but they couldn't grasp it. Had you ever stopped to think sometime that when you go to the church and if you have a Bible teaching pastor and you say after church, maybe to your wife or to your husband, you say, I don't think the pastor today was quite up to it. I didn't feel like his message was quite equal to what he is capable of giving. Had you ever stopped to think that the problem may have been that day with you, seeing your dull or hearing? 
The problem may not be in the speaking. The problem may be in the hearing. It's ear trouble today that is the big problem of believers, of hearing the Word of God. Now, the problem is just simply this, and he's going to deal with it quite forthrightly. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but it's a difficult subject that requires sharp spiritual perception. It requires folk to be spiritually alert. Those that have a knowledge of the Word of God and are close to the Word of God. His readers, the Hebrew believers then, he said they had a low SQ. Not an IQ, but a low SQ. That is a spiritual quotient. Spiritually, they were way down. It's hard to be uttered. means that it was difficult to make them understand, hard of interpretation to speak, and the reason for it was because they were little babies. All they understood was baby talk. Da, 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 and goo, goo, goo. And that's all that some of the saints want today. They like baby talk, even from the preacher. They don't want something that is difficult. And I say this carefully. That's the reason that some preachers are getting by with murder today in the pulpit. They murder the Word of God. They absolutely kill it. And they give something else or give nothing in the world but their own viewpoint. My friend, may I say to you that the reason is that a lot of folk like baby talk. Now, he's going to really get down to business here. Listen to him. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again. They should now have learned their ABCs. And some of them want a BD degree, but they don't even know their ABCs. And he has to go over the baby stuff again. He has to give them milk again. Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles, and that word First principles in the Greek is stoikeia, from which we get our word Adam, by the way. Atoms are stoikeia. It means primary elements. The ABCs of the Christian life. They ought to be teachers. They ought to be mature saints. But instead of that, they're still little babies. And what they need is somebody to burp them. A pastor friend of mine I ask him how he's getting along. Well, he says, I'm getting really tired of burping a bunch of spiritual babies. And that's what a great many people are, which are the first principles of the oracles of God. Here is an example. A member stops me after the morning service. I'm shaking hands. They stopped and said, Dr. McGee, do you have anything against me? And I said, no. Why? Why do you say that? Well, you passed me yesterday on the street, and you didn't speak to me. That's baby talk. Don't you know I didn't even see you? be perfect nonsense to talk like that. Why did you this morning not have the soloist sing? We wanted to hear the soloist sing. Oh, my gracious, little babies, little babies wanting their rattle, want the bottle with a nipple in it. Oh, today, you're such as have need of milk and not a strong meat. That is, you're not full-grown. You haven't reached maturation. Now, a baby cannot eat meat. 
but an adult can enjoy milk. And I'll admit that a lot of mature saints today sit and listen to baby talk from the pulpit. It's tragic indeed that they have to do that, but they do. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. He doesn't know the word of God. And may I make this plea? I don't want to step on your toes. I'd love to be helpful to you. You cannot grow apart from the Word of God. I don't care how active you are in the church. You may be an officer. You may be chairman of every committee in the church. You may be the leading deacon or the leading elder in the church. I don't care who you are. If you are not in the Word of God and don't know how to handle the Word of God, you're a little baby. And it's tragic to occupy an office when you're just a little baby. You ought to come on and grow up. It's tragic that there are people that have been members of the church and been saved for years, and they're still going around saying, goo, 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 goo. Nothing in the world but a little baby talk. That's all in the world. And all they... One is just to be burnt periodically. Now, verse 14, "...but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age," that is, full-grown, "...even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, who are able to read the Word of God intelligently." My friend, that's the reason we are teaching the Bible on the Through the Bible program. And that's the reason we're doing nothing but that. We do not major in music. We do not major in anything else. And we're not saying those things are not right. They are right. I just couldn't sing, and I have no appreciation really of music. But I believe today that this is something I should do, is teach the Bible. Because I have seen over a period of years how ignorant, People, church members, can be of the Word of God. Some of them never grow up, always babes.